This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. Hello. We were just together this weekend. I know. I feel like seeing you on a screen again is a little bit of a letdown. I got I to be with you in real life for a yep. few days, and now yep. I have to go back to looking at you through the videos. I much prefer uh, the IRL stuff. I do, too. I do, too. It exhausts you, but it's better to it's be in it. person and, and yep. with one another. Yeah. Yeah. And... And our listeners have a treat for what's coming next. Do we do we want to mention that now or just let it be a surprise? Yeah, I think all we will mention is that we have recorded an episode of the podcast with the Permission to Be podcast folks. With an audience. With an audience. And uh, yeah, we're going to be releasing that soon. Yeah, so very good. Uh, it was a really, really amazing day at a brewery. So we got to, instead of talking over tea, we got to talk over beer. Lots of good beer. Yeah, it was, it was lovely. It was a good weekend all the way around. Beautiful weather in Charlotte. It was perfect. I was the only one wearing a mask on my airplane. That was a little disconcerting. Yeah. But you know, things are back to normal. Didn't you know that? (laughs) Elon Musk has bought Twitter. I know. I mean, really, like that's an entire episode. I feel like every time somebody says that, says that I want to throw up in my mouth a little. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so disconcerting and so problematic. It's, it's literally the end times. (laughs) It could be. Yes. It could be. It could be the entire. I'm waiting for that white horse to descend. I, I know you are. I know you are. Or pigs that are flying or, yeah. you know, any yeah. any number of things. Yeah. Um, but how are you otherwise, other than our in real life uh, time together? How, how are, how are, how are these days finding you? So I, um, this will not be a surprise to you, but I uh, landed about 30 minutes early yesterday and, um, I listened to my audio book, uh, to my book on audio. Yes. 
because I want to make sure that it sounds okay. Yeah. And then we went and early voted to get that out of way and we're watching the DA race to because there's that whole um criminalization of homelessness that we're concerned about. Right. So um, you know, we went and voted and then I got home and r- then ran some errands. I thought I would take a siesta. And by the end of the day, I was like, wow, I'm really tired. And, you know, I've not done a string of events like I did this weekend in right. quite some time. And, you know, I'm, I am sitting with uh, this sort of return to normalcy feels like an accelerated version of supremacy culture and this sort of let's get back to normal and let's do all the things. And I just don't know that a, our bodies are prepared for it. And I don't know if our nervous systems are prepared for it. So I'm, I'm sort of kind of sitting with that. And this morning when I woke up, um, I kind of was just in a daze and a fog because I, I, you know, I had some spaciousness and, and I think I really need that spaciousness instead of the constant urgency that the world around me is is like putting pressure on. And so I'm just kind of sitting with that tension of, uh, you know, we, we did two events a day this weekend. And yes. that feels like a lot. And I'm just sitting with you know, how, you know, your, your thing around equity, which has been sort of a lifelong concern of yours, you know, how do we do this in a way where we, where everyone is practicing equity and, you know, how do we get compensated for the labor? And so I'm just kind of sitting with all of that, you know, yeah. and, um, because we did not get paid. Correct. Um, I did advocate for to have our expenses covered, which I received a check for and then promptly Venmoed you. Um, but, you know, I'm just kind of sitting with how, how do we do this work in a way that allows us the freedom to live out our vocational life, but that also creates opportunity or conditions for us to be compensated for us to live out our vocation. Right. So just kind of sitting with that tension and obviously the news of Elon Musk buying Twitter and taking it private. And is it going to be a subscription service? And, you know, the, all these things are, are, they're concerning to me, right? Because, I'm all, I'm certainly for free speech and I'm for the reduction of harm in the world and I'm not sure that I mean Twitter has long not had an ethics of engagement but I'm not sure even now with Elon Musk owning it there's going to be an ethics of engagement so you know there's a lot of things swirling my mind you know my partner has major surgery tomorrow so I'm sitting with with that we're sort of preparing for that um and, you know, I've got to be up at three o'clock uh, tomorrow morning to get to the hospital in time. And as you discovered this weekend, um, I don't use an alarm. And so. <laughs> I mean, I knew that already. Yeah. I knew that already. But um, yes, when when we agreed what time we needed to be awake to go to preach on Sunday morning, I said, um you know, how are you going to get up tomorrow? And you said, you're going to tell me when it's time to get up. 
I said, okay, yeah. I will do that. And then when I did tell you it was time to get up, you said, what time is it? And I said, it's the time that we agreed that I would tell you it's time to get up. Like, what do you mean? What time is it? Get up. Yeah. 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 True story. I like think it went back. I went back to the day where, you know, the days where I was a 10th grader and my mother was like, you know, popping her head in the door every two minutes. Come on. You got, come on. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. What time is it? It's the time we agreed on. Yeah. Yeah. True story. (laughs) But this is also why you like to keep me around because I, I yeah, do, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I make sure that your life is, uh, that, that you are where you need to be and, and uh, on time and, and on time and, 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 and that you get rested when you need to. So yeah, dressed and pressed and ready to go. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, it, you know, it's a Tuesday, uh, in the world that we're recording this podcast and, this is going to be a busy week on this end in our household, just with surgery and recovery and making sure everything goes well. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, here I am. I'm I'm here and ready and thrilled that we got to be together this weekend and really excited about potential partnerships in Charlotte and um and super excited about our work. We, you know, we got good news yesterday, which we will be unfolding over the course of several weeks, I'm sure. Yes. Um, but how are you? I'm good. Um, I also, you know, I'm recovering from the weekend. I I mean, you had a long drive. I did. I drove to and from Charlotte, um, which actually I really, I, I loved. I will tell you, though, where I was telling you about this amazing murder mystery book that I was listening to on yeah. Audible. And I thought I had planned it so that I would listen to the first half on the way there and the second half on the way home. And I got home and I had 20 minutes left and I still didn't know who had done it. Oh. And I I actually contemplated like driving around for no reason at all just to finish listening to the book. And I ended up not doing that. But what that has now done is I have had no time since right. I got home to listen to the book. So I still have 20 minutes left yeah. in this amazing thriller and I have no idea what's going to happen. So yeah, uh, yeah, that, that was my, that was my, my ride home. Let me ask you a question. Do you think I should listen to some fiction books? Do you think it would help me? I mean, that's, that's an, that's an interesting way to ask that question. I don't know. I, I'm not sure why you believe you need help and what kind of help you think that that would give you. I do think it would, I, I think that fiction spawns in us a creativity often yeah. that we don't get with nonfiction. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I only read nonfiction. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think I mean, we I, all have our deficits. That's one of mine. I, I am. I'm not, I'm not calling it a deficit and I don't think you need to be fixed or helped by listening to fiction. But I also think that there are ways that, you know, you may find, you know, just some kind of rest and pleasure in listening or reading books that, don't require your your brain and your fiveness to always be engaged. Yeah, yeah. But that's just you know two cents. Who knows? Well, I like your two cents. I mean, I that's why do. I keep you around. You bring the brains to this partnership, and <laughs> and I bring the beauty. Let's just remember that. That's what's most important. Said no one ever. We both bring the beauty, and I definitely don't bring the brains. 
So we are really thrilled today, friends. We have gone on long enough. We are thrilled today to have with us a guest that um, I know, Robin, you have been um, talking about working with and, yeah. and engaging with I'm really for excited about this. a while now. Yeah. Um, we are welcoming into the Activist Theology podcast space author Edelette McVicker. Um, she is, um, an Afrikaner woman, uh, who, uh, grew up in South Africa during apartheid. She, um, now find, she finds her home now in a multitude of places. Um, and she will share with you, um, whatever pieces of that home life that she cares to when we invite her in here. But the reason that we're talking with um, Edelette today is because she has a brand new book that is in the world that all of you should be taking a look at. It's called Recovering Racists, uh, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. And we're really thrilled that Edelette is taking some time today to be with us on the Activist Theology Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What a, what a gift to be here. I love just listening in to both of you. <laughs> That's what they all say. Yeah, they all say. yeah, yeah. 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 That, that's probably the only reason that we're on season three is because people like listening in. <laughs> Well, it's such a generous space, right? Like that relational space. And I think thank that you. and I think that creates such movement too, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, we're we're trying to model something different here because mm-hmm. so much of the movement space that I've been a part of, the sort of liberal progressive or progressive liberal left, um, still is very mechanistic and transactional in transactional. relationship. Yes. And um, I'm not for that and sort of I, I, I opt out of that progressive and liberal space because it just doesn't reflect my commitments. So, yeah, the Activist Theology Project and the podcast itself is really trying to do, you know, recover relationship in the work. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And for me, that this journey has been a relational journey for sure. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, I would love if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, um, how you come at the work, um, uh, maybe, you know, begin to introduce us a little bit into this amazing book offering that you have just put into the world. But um, fill our listeners in, tell them a little bit about who you are and, um, and, and why and why you're amazing. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, today I am sitting in my chair in the basement in our home um, in Surrey, British Columbia, which is on Turtle Island, um, or, or else over here where we are called Canada. Um, I am on the unceded territories of the Kwantlen, the Semiamu, and the Stolo peoples. I am an immigrant settler here, and that's definitely shaped um, so much of the story here for me too. Um, originally, I come from the Drakenstein Mountains. Um, I'm held by the Drakenstein Mountains, um, grounded by them um, as a child growing up in South Africa um, in, a, in a town called Parle. Um, and as a just so I'm coming from three different continents actually in my soul that was really shaped by um, 
the African continent, living in South Africa at the time. Um, I went to Taiwan when I was about 23, 24 years old, and then moved to North America in 1999, so almost 22 years ago or 22 years ago. So three continents that really shaped my soul and my kind of my perspective on the world, but definitely starting out in South Africa during what was a system called apartheid. Mm-hmm. And so that very relational piece was so, um, the way it was shaped within me was so off, right? Um, the very word apartheid means separateness, to be separate. And it was a system, a legal system, economic system, relational system, um, that separated people based on the color of our skin. Mm. Um a spiritual system, right? Um, but apartheid lasted for 46 years in South Africa officially. Of course, we know there's a long history of colonization right. um, and how that came to be, right? Um, but that was really where I was born. And I was born right into the, the height of apartheid, right? Right into the sort of the center of it of when I worked it out. And you were talking about Elon Musk. Um, I was born a year after he was born. Um, and so, and he was born in South Africa, right? Mm. And so we, yeah, that was the story that shaped my consciousness, um, that white bubble. Um, I was born in, an, I was literally born in, on the white side of the hospital. Mm. And then went to an all-white school for the first, you know, like the first 12 years of my life. Um, went to an all-white church. Right. And um, the theology that shaped my life was created by our denomination, or that apartheid theology, right, at that time. And so while it wasn't preached from the pulpit, um, they weren't allowed to talk about apartheid from the pulpit, it was felt, right? You, um, and it was, I, I, you know, it's the things you don't talk about. It's the people who are missing now that have, have shaped my life. Um, and I, you know, there's, I was talking about the things that shape your life. Like I've heard this, like it's the books you read and the places you go to and the people you meet. But when I think about the people I didn't meet, mm. the people I didn't get to have relationship with, that is one of the pieces that has shaped me most in my life, I would say. Um, and also I kind of this hierarchy of what it means to be human that was that was set up by the system, right? Um, depending on where you lived or what work you could do, um, this, your, the color of your skin really, really uh, mandated that at the time. So yeah, the first sixteen years of my life was was very much that white bubble. This very much an unconsciousness around that. Um, I started reading a book that had been banned when I was about 16 years old and um, it had recently been unbanned. So things were starting to lift and things were starting to open up. Um, and the library had this, had this, like this whole shelf of books, a turnstile of books that said recently unbanned books. And uh, I was like, oops, okay. Give this me all library. of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. the library, isn't this a safe space? I have grown up in the library. This, how, you know, how dangerous can this be? And I was exactly, oh, books can be so dangerous. That's, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, you know. And what book was it? 
It was called the dry white season in Afrikaans. It was a druwe wit seizoen. Um, it was a white author, but he talked about apartheid and a, and a relationship with a black man in a way that I had not encountered before. Mm. And he talked about apartheid the way it was, what it really was. And whereas everything else, the narrative had been shaped through media, through only through the, the apartheid government lens, right? And so it was a very, it was a very different take on, on this, on the story that I was growing up in. But when I read it, it felt like all of these pieces that I'd kind of like been at the edges of my story, at the edges of my hearing, of my consciousness, stood up and aligned. And I was like, oh, yeah. this is the truth. Yeah. This is the truth. And this construct of my, what my, who I was in the world, what this world I was is, who we are, who I was in the story, sh got shattered. Right? And so I had to, I just have the sense of like, just kind of walking out of this house that had crumbled mm -hmm. to into this wide open space and not knowing what I was looking for. But I had a sense, I had a sense like when I was looking up to those mountains that there was an enlargeness, an expansiveness, a love that held us or that was, that meant there was meaning to hold us all. And I went looking for that. I wanted that. Mm. A different way of being human. You know, I, I often, Anna has heard this story several times, but I often talk about the moment I knew that I was different racially when, when my brown mother from Mexico asked me, does anyone ever make fun of you for the color of your skin? Okay. And, and I, and I remember that, that, shaped my entire life, right? That I was, f for her, I was moving through the world in a perhaps different way. And, you know, at five years old, I didn't have the language of race or racism or anything yeah. like that. But I, but I did grow up in a part of Texas, East Texas, which still to this day uses derogatory terms to refer to black skin, and so, you know, I had heard those terms, but I had never, at that point, at five years old, you know, hadn't been able to place those words in relationship to race or, or racism. And, and so you, and when you grow up in a context that certainly shapes your consciousness and shapes your practices, um, I can imagine reading a book really creates the first crack in the veneer that, mm -hmm. that you were born into. Yeah. I mean, yes. And I, so a few months before I read that book and, you know, I, I I'm trying to figure out that timeline and I, you know, I, I don't quite have it, but I believe um, it was the summer that we went to, Germany. My dad was a German teacher. He wasn't German by, by, that's not our ancestry. We're, we're Dutch, um, from Utrecht in, in the Netherlands. Like our, when we trace back our, my, our ancestors on my dad's side. Um, and I'm still working on the other, kind of on the other side, right? But so that, but, but he chose to go and study German. So this is also interesting to me, right? Mm -hmm. Because after World War II, 
why did my dad, that, that was kind of the time, why did my dad decide to go and study German? I think there were bursaries available. So I'm still, there was a, there was a relationship. In fact, um, I believe some of the creators of apartheid um, studied in Germany at three mm. different schools in Germany. So there was a relationship there, right? With, with that, with the, with the country. And so it's interesting when you see these forces kind of move around the world, right? right? Uh, but my dad chose to be a German teacher and, it, and, and then took a group of us, a group of um, students to Germany when I was around 16 years old. And my dad took us to Dachau, to the concentration camp. And that was, was really, I would say, the first crack because I, I stood, you know, I stood in the gas chambers and like an, and, the whole place is so somber. So talk about the a place, the land that cries out, right? Mm. A place that cries out. Like we were a bunch of teenagers and we walked through those gates um, that day and we were quiet. Like that place requires that you become somber and reflective and honor the space, the pain mm. of that space, right? And we did that, Just it just requires it, right? And so we walked, I remember we walked into the gas chambers and I, and it was almost like I didn't comprehend what where we were until it clicked for me. And I, and I realized what had happened in that space. And, and I remember thinking, how can people be so evil? How mm. can we be so evil to each other? Like, how can we be so inhumane? And I still didn't connect it to my own story. It's, <laughs> it was only when I then went back and then read a dry white season, I'm like, oh, we are doing this too. Mm. This is our own way of dehumanizing and diminishing and separating and op oppressing. And so I'm like, oh, I, yeah. So that for me, those things worked together to really create that crack and that shattering, mm. that shattering. Um, and then I was just, you know, disillusioned and, and mad and angry and, yeah. and um, yeah, just try to find what do I do with this now? Yeah. And so that, that actually is the, the next question that I was, that was kind of burning in me was, you know, how did you find your way into disentangling, all of that. Um, I mean, I, I have often described my, um, my journey of kind of recognizing my own bend to racism and white supremacy as a hairball. Like it, it, it feels like it's like so like intertwined and, and intermingled. It's like a, it's like a big ball of yarn that isn't just a ball of yarn. It's all knotted. So it's knotted and then it's balled up again and then it's knotted again. And then it's like, and, and there, you know, one string might allow for a slight disentangling and for some recognition, but then you come to another knot. Yeah. You come to another kind of piece of mess that right. you have to then, um, you know, navigate and disentangle again. And so I'm wondering what that process um, looked like for you as you begin to recognize the system, the the repetitive nature of our systems of oppression um, as a young adult, um, 
how did how did that how did that process of disentanglement work for you and also is is it that process that led to this this book um or were there other processes that you think m- informed it more than than that one hmm. you know when you were saying hairball the first thing i thought about was that the hairball how a, tr- a cat tries to kind of cough it out and how that hairball was within me mm mm-hmm. It wasn't separate from me. It wasn't this thing outside of me. It was within me. And maybe that's a way to think about it. For me, it was more, um, it was almost like there were these heavy rocks within me. Heavy, heavy rocks within my soul. Um, and there was a, there, um, and we can talk about that, that. That was part of the process. It's later on in the process where there was one day where I was sitting with a black friend. We were sitting in Kenya. And it was the first time. I was in my 30s. It was the first time I was sitting at a breakfast table <clears throat> um, with a black South African friend. And I felt like I had rocks in my mouth, like I mm. couldn't talk, especially when we switched to Afrikaans, which is my mother tongue, and it was her mother tongue too. And so um, there, for me, it was more like these rocks and these heaviness. And as I have been disentangling, it was like, um, finding these, like, you know, these ugly rocks within myself, like that heavy weighty pieces that I've been carrying in my consciousness and my body too. It felt like in my soul, um, and kind of taking them and just, and interrogating them and seeing, Oh yeah, you've been here. Like, um, what do I do with you? And, um, and just, yeah. So it's been more like that. Um, and me trying to cough up this hairball, right? Um, when I, when I, there was two things that, that shaped my consciousness further. Um, apart from like growing up in that and um, then be, becoming this, this person after that um, in South Africa that was what that was um, opening up, right? Uh, it was, it was, we were literally democratizing. Like we were watching this process of democracy unfold, right? Nelson Mandela being released. Um, it was, I was in my grade 12 year and he was released like a few minutes from where I lived. The prison was like not far from where I lived. Um, watching, um, just things, laws being uh, like changed and things changing right, um, Every day, something was happening, right? Um, and shifting. And um, then in 1994, and this was a really big one for me too. So I, in the meantime, I'd moved from one university, which was mostly Afrikaans-centered, to a different university that, to study journalism. And I, and this was in a, I moved to an English context and in a different part of um, the province that I'd grown up. And it was a much more english um and so I'd already made the sort of cultural shift in many ways, which was already a step. There was a, this sort of this, I was thinking language was the problem and it wasn't language. It was just, all, it was all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I was there in Grahamstown, I got to vote in the first democratic elections. Oh, I was 18 years old. I got to vote in that first democratic elections in 1994 now, the context of that is I was 18. Somebody like the Archbishop Desmond Tutu was also voting in that election for the first time. 
People had waited decades for that moment, for that right to vote. And so it's incredibly humbling um, to, but what, a, what an honor and what a privilege to have, to be able to vote that day too, with millions of people who voted for the first time. And so we stood in lineups. I don't know if you look at pictures from that day. We stood in lineups for hours wow. to vote. But what I remember about that day was the sun on our bodies, the sun on our faces, the sun shining on everybody in this lineup. And the women in front of me dancing and singing and moving their bodies. And there, there was this... Um, um, there's a movement of the body that's called, it's kind of a dance. It's a, um, a, a liberative dance. It was a, um, it was called a toy toy and, and women were dancing and I got taken up into this. Like we, it was this sense of freedom, a sense of liberation that was in the air. When you have, when justice comes, that there is this almost, that this peace also is in the air. And I know it was just political, right? Like at the, it was a political shift. So much else needed to happen, right? Economically, um, other things like in, in every other way, right? Through society, but it was a, it was a political shift, but there was something different in the air and you could feel it. And I felt it. And it was that thing I was looking for. It was that taste of that expansiveness of that freedom of peace of you being human, fully alive, with others, with others, our bodies together in this space celebrating and joy. There was joy as well, right? Um, and so that then shaped me because I got a taste of that, another mm -hmm. one. So when I went to Taiwan, I, you know, I, I left South Africa to go, I need to go pay some low, <laughs> some student loans, look for some adventure. Um, and I had a friend who was going to go teach English. I ended up uh, working as a journalist in Taiwan. Um, and it was in Taiwan that my, my faith got renewed, which was so bizarre because I, you know, I had kind of thought I'd left this Jesus behind. And I was like, I mean, I, I really, what I'd left behind was a white Jesus. I, mm. I didn't want anything with that emaciated white Jesus. To, I didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with that Jesus. But I encountered a very different spirit in Taiwan. And in that context, that global context in a global, a global community, right? And so as I was trying to disentangle this process of disentanglement, also just kind of trying to make sense of who I was, um, it was, it was right alongside my faith that was coming alive. This was this invitation. And, um, for me, the, the piece that really then also directed this process would say was shame. Also in that global context, we, there was a, there was another night and so I was this journalist. I got to go and I, I did a lot of work with the diplomatic community and kind of the international community. I got to tell stories of that. Right. So I was invited to go and cover the, this, the story of freedom day. Um, at the time, South Africa had diplomatic relationship relations with Taiwan. I walked into this beautiful ballroom in Taipei and, you know, drinking South African wine and the lights were beautiful and all of these dignitaries there. And I remember shaking somebody's hand, saying my name 
and my surname at the time was very was very Afrikaans, very like Dutch sounding, and um, my accent and everything. And I I would I, I stretch out my hand saying my name in this context, and I realized, oh my goodness, these people know I am an Afrikaner woman. Mm. They know this room knows I was not on the right side of history. It was my people created apartheid that tonight we're celebrating freedom from my people created it. Mm-hmm. And I am those people. This is me. And it was this warm wash of shame. Mm. And I had to then figure out so. Who am I in this world? The United Nations called this a crime against humanity, which it was. And how do I now find my way as the one who had committed this crime? As the, I, was, I was fully identifying it. And I think there was a sense of communal, uh, I don't know, that communal identity had been shaped by me, had been shaped in me already. It wasn't such an individualistic identity. So I, for me, it was like my people had done this. Mm-hmm. We had done this. And who am I in the world? And do I even have a right to sit in the circle of humanity? Mm. I didn't think I did. But that shame and then this faith that in the meantime was opening up and, and, and becoming, what's just this becoming, like this was like this, sense of this other sense of freedom, right? This is liberation on the one side. I was like, I don't think I'm meant to be stuck in shame. And how do I move out of this and through this? And how, what, what is this journey? So that for me was then I had to, I kept still (laughs) really kept looking and leaning in. Hmm. Wow. And so tell us a little bit about the book itself. Tell us a little bit about how you, what, what was it that was kind of breaking inside you that, that had to get out? How, how did recovering racists come to be? So really, I mean, I think I've been writing this book since I was 16, really, right? In some way or another, because I wasn't right. I was trying to make sense of the world in some way, right? Um, and uh, so when I moved to Canada, I, um, yeah, you know, I really started writing some of the story. I tried to write some of the story down because I knew some of my freedom was locked up in the story. Mm. And I didn't know how, but every time as I was sitting quietly or as I was entering into prayer, there was this. I just felt this deep connection to apartheid and I just kept going back. It was like this invitation to just keep going back, move into, move into that. This, and um, I think I delved into the spiritual aspect of, 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 of what this was, right? Um, there's a theologian in, in, in South Africa who, who named it and said, you know, racism is spiritual, and I think I didn't, I didn't have language for that, but, but that's really what I was doing. I was trying to untangle this thing in the spirit too, right? Um, and so writing it too, and writing some of my story and how did this connect it? And uh, there was a big moment for me in, um, where, where I was there, you know, you, you were in a, in a, you're in a, you're in a place like that. And I, and I, and if, and I want to make sure, because this is, I am a white woman talking about this right and so 
um, when I talk about, I, I'm going to tell a story, but I, I want to understand the story is in that very large context of pain. And my story is, it's my story, but it is, it's such a snippet of the generations of people who have been harmed, right? But it's that idea of our mutuality, of how we belong to each other. And it was, it was the Archbishop Desmond Tutu's language that he, that was such a gift to me in No Future Without Forgiveness around Ubuntu, that we belong to each other, that our freedom is connected to each other, that I cannot be fully free until you are fully free, that, that we move, um, in this, in this mutuality, right? Um, and so as I was trying to, get unstuck in my life. Because I was, I felt very stuck. Um, and I couldn't move forward on some of my dreams or my ideas. And it just felt stuck. Remember those rocks? I just felt really weighted down in my life. And as I was going back, I, I, I kept going back to this, this story and I didn't, and I had to untangle it. And I think that took about, that took about 20 years. And mm. it was a story, um, around the, the year 1976. Um, and at the time, the apartheid government um, decided to create a law, or they wanted to bring in a law that would mandate everybody to, to, to learn in Afrikaans. And it was called then the language of the oppressor. Um, and so they wanted to make Afrikaans the language of instruction. And so students rose up and said, we will not have any of this. And there was um, um, there was a um, students uh, like a movement of, of students rising up in 1976 in Suetu, and they were they were marching, and they were saying, "We won't have our instruction in Afrikaans. This is the language of the oppressor. This is the language of apartheid. Why would we even do this? Like this is unacceptable, right?" And so. Um, the, uh, the, the military that day opened up fire and a 12 year old boy named Hector Peterson was killed. Hmm. And the image of Hector Peterson being carried, uh, um, and his sister, Antoinette Sitoli, right, running right next to him, their faces were distraught, holding this, their, her brother, a fellow student in their arms, running, trying to find help. And that image went around the world, and that image sparked so many uprisings, right? So many people revolting against the system of apartheid and against this law and everything that was going on. And the ripple effects then came to my town, which was very far from Suetu, um, but people needed to express their, you know, anger and um, it needed to rise up, right? And so um, there was a night when, you know, living in this white community, in this white context, I was, I've, the way I've, I've, I've figured this out was I about three, just, just, be my fourth, just before my fourth birthday. And uh, um, my dad was going to, I watched my dad that night standing in front of the door and I had the sense that he had a gun, that they were going to go out in the neighborhood. And the idea was for them to patrol the streets to keep it safe for the white families, for our families. Um, he thought he was, you know, doing the right thing. But as, a, as this tiny girl standing watching my dad 
I saw the fear in his face and that fear was fully internalized. And that fear was this, um, it was this moment where I felt like I, I saw the evil of the world mm. and the racism that was in the waterways, the racism that was in the air, the racism where I was standing barefoot on the carpet in her home that was in the soil. And I just had a profound sense of how wrong all of that was and how evil, but I, I didn't, I, I couldn't make sense of it in my little three-year-old body. Right. And so a part of me had left, right? Like just had to go find a safe space within myself. And so as a 40 something old person, then I had to go to therapy and untie that. And, and, and so my story is deeply connected to the story of Hector Peterson. Mm-hmm. And so in my quiet times and in my life, I couldn't deny that my story is connected to the story of apartheid and to the pain we have caused. And we think we hurt, we put up, we put on a law on the land that law holds everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And the generations that my ancestors tried to set up for success and privilege. And I write about this and I say, they forgot that I needed a soul. Mm. They didn't account for that, that I needed to be fully human. And when we oppress somebody and diminish somebody and put limits and boundaries and laws on somebody else's lives, and we take, take, take and steal, we lose our humanity. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I just finished Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. Oh. And... Um, because I'm, I'm trying to work through myself, uh, mixed raceness, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and yet I move in the world with the skin color that I have that affords me power, access, and privilege. But I have this long history of my family migrating across borders, and you know, half my family is dark skin, and yeah. so um, I listened to his book, and um, well, a, a good friend of mine is one of uh, Desmond Tutu's daughters. And uh-huh. um, so I have, I do have this deep connection to the people of South Africa <sighs> and um, listening to that book and thinking through um, what it means to be colored, what it means to be black, what it means to be white um, was, was, I mean, it was really good for me to sort of be in that discourse. I, I'm curious about, um, how your different geopolitical moves shaped mm. your mind, shaped your consciousness. Um, I was born and raised in Texas, but left in my mid-20s and moved to Chicago, which is sort of where I came into my transness and my queerness, and then yeah. moved to Colorado for the PhD, and that shaped me on a deep level. And then I moved out west to the Bay Area, which also shaped me and yeah. and. I, and also sort of revealed the the things that I was missing and yeah. and how deeply disconnected I was from like my roots, for example. And I'm just really curious, you know, you you leave South Africa for Taiwan. Um, how did that move shape you? And then how do you remain connected to your roots, your South African roots? Yeah. Um you know, absolutely, it shaped me. I think, you know, even just going and, and, and 
moving in Taiwan and, and, um, and then again, moving to Canada and to North American context. And I think the, the more I moved, the, the more I longed for South Africa too. Cause, mm-hmm. um, for me, that was the, uh, there was a deep grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very long time before I, um, before I applied for citizenship in, in Canada. And I was my, I, I was already, I was pregnant with my third, with our third child. And I was like, I had, I, I, I felt like, okay, I guess I have to do this because now I'm a mother. And if anything happened, I need to be able to care for them right. in this context. And so I, I did the application, but I, you know, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. And so I am, uh, I'm kind of do things very enthusiastically and spontaneously and kind of didn't look through the things. And, after I applied for the citizenship, I was supposed to, um, sorry, this is, yeah. I was supposed to send a letter and ask for permission, um, to, to have this this second citizenship. Right. Um, and I didn't, I thought I could do it after. Um, and you know, it's just ignorance and naivety on my part. And I went back to South Africa and a lawyer friend said to me, and we were just sitting one Sunday afternoon, we're sitting and it's childhood friend. And he's like, uh, you lost your citizenship, your South African citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I was like, excuse me. He's like, yeah, you, there was a law that, or there was an amendment and it came in and, and you had lost your citizenship. And, 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 um, and that was a profound moment of loss, more loss on top of loss. And yet it was also for me, it was like, as a white woman, I didn't feel like I had the right I felt like this is my loss to carry in some way. And yet it was also, um, you know, how dare I <laughs> mm-hmm. say that I belong to this, to this country. And, and yet uh, this is my soul. I move, I, I land in South Africa. My body is at home. Mm-hmm. My heart is home. I am, I, I move into Afrikaans. I'm like, there is something that just shifts in a profound way, right? So for me, the more I moved away, the more I needed to connect with South Africa, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I carry the like I carry the country in my heart in a very deep. I feel very deep, connected, and responsible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some way, I have held that loss as a significant symbolic act is maybe as solidarity, maybe as yeah. uh, repentance. I don't know. Um, but you probably could have heard that in my voice too, right? There, there's, you know, um, I, I, I write about in the book that, you know, I, th- I don't know if this is good theology or not, <laughs> but it, what it felt like where I've been grappling with is there's this, there's, there's, it talks about when you don't honor the land and the people of the land, the land spits you out. Yeah, yeah. I when I when I was in Chicago and I had to my life. I kept my Texas license until I couldn't, and I went to um, the DMV and I broke down and cried when I had to surrender my Texas license, <sighs> and because. Because for me, you know, Texas is complicated in lots of different ways, but it it's the land that shaped me and yeah. it's the ways that I understand hospitality and it's the yeah. ways that I understand uh, 
in, in many respects, the, the sort of freedom that many Texas people uh, fought for for a long time, including uh, Mexicans. And, and they asked me, do you have any mental problems? You know, because I was grieving that I was yeah. what I felt yeah. I was losing a big part of my identity. Yeah, absolutely. And having to acquiesce to the system uh, in a place like Chicago. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I, I resonate with that. And, and so much of, I mean, Anne and I went and did some work down on the border and, yeah. and you know, landing in Texas and hearing the Spanish and being able yeah. To um, you know, recognize phrases and whatnot. You know, it, there is something, there is something about that land that speaks to me still, and right. um, in a way that Nashville doesn't. But but I, I love Nashville for for lots of reasons. So I yeah. I uh, I resonate with the sort of carrying the land in, in your soul. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. I th- that identity piece is so big, right? And yeah. so I think that just, but that that helped me understand. Just enter into um, kind of where do people, where have people lost identity? Yeah. Um, you know, and um, yeah, just so just like you can you can enter into stories of pain in it in a different way, I guess, right? But again, you know, like you come from, I'm from the side of the oppressor, mm-hmm. right? So. How do I make sense of that? So that book, the book was shaped. I mean, it's really, how do I make sense of being a human in this world, right? Mm-hmm. How do I hold um, this oppressor identity and beloved identity? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I love that. I um, I'm curious. So a, a lot of the work that the Activist Theology Project um is is kind of supported through is this is our rich understanding of community and and a real um, desire for us to use community and use our capacity to be together with one another to really create this this future in which we want to live. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book is actually uh, is some comments that you make regarding fragmentation um, and how um, the fragments and the stories and the memories and the communities that have been torn apart um, get put back together when we remember, yeah. remember yes. um, the the ways that um, racism has torn us apart, um, and you use this this concept of um, fragmentation and and fragments being. I, I, I I'm not going to say it correctly, but it was um, that that the fragments had been sacrificed on altars of. Uh, minimalization and dehumanization and that then we we reclaim those fragments in community and through memories and through story um i'm wondering if you could just touch on that a little bit before we go um our listeners are really used to hearing us talk about community and togetherness in that kind of way um and i feel like there's a richness there and a resonance there that that could really um, kind of uh, tie and 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 weave an, a, an additional thread for for your work and for the beauty of this book. Thank you. Yeah, yeah fragments and fragmentation definitely was a theme, or is a theme for me in my life. Absolutely. Um, 
Um, yeah, you know, I think as I was trying, I was just trying to pick up the pieces, right? And I kind of go looking for those pieces, the fragments. Um, there was a, I remember there was a story and, and um, there was a day when I was, was, was reading through John 6, 12, this kind of the, um, the multiplication of bread and, 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 and fish. And I remember the piece that stood out for me was a sense of Jesus telling, telling people to pick up the pieces, um, um, pick, gather up the fragments so, because nothing is wasted. Mm. Um, or there was, there's different translations, and I looked it up in every different kind of translation. Like, gather up the fragments so nothing is wasted. Um, and it, it was really, I think that felt like a promise, like just the sense of even these fragmented pieces as we start looking for them and, and, and going out into the world to go and find them and gather the sense of gathering um, and the sense of value as well to where so often we attach value to, to different things, but, but that sense of the spirit attaching value to the fragments, to what some regard as leftovers mm -hmm. or just things that, you know, waste. And yet there was this honor brought to the fragments a sense of value. And, and um, so that for me was a quest. It became a quest. Like, like how do I, how do I gather up? How do I gather up these fragments? So nothing is wasted. Mm. And I hope, you know, there is this gathering up in this, in this, um, in the story, but then also to become mindful of where are there fragments in our world? Right. What are the fragments that we need to pick up? Or what is my fragment to pick up? Um, where is somebody, a person, somebody in my community? And, and this sense of being gathered together. One of the other pieces around that was this, was this sense of under, going from an individual understanding of self to a communal understanding of self, really the Ubuntu, the Ubuntu, um, understanding mutuality, a deep connectedness. So that sense of, you know, we always often talk about the spirit weaving us together and are knitting together in the mother's womb, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was traveling back to South Africa, to my motherland, to the mother city, often we call Cape Town the mother city. I was going to go speak my, the mother tongue. Um, and it was like, I was reading the Psalm through a different lens where this kind of sense of God weaving together humanity in the mother's womb. And how can we be part of that? Mm. How can, how would, do we need to be woven together? Right. How do we pick up the shards, the sharp pieces? Um, that's, that's been shattered between us, you know? Um, I, just that, yeah. Um, just the, the spaces between us. I, I really think deeply about that. What exists in the spaces between us that we don't always have eyes to see, mm -hmm. but we feel them. Mm -hmm. um, where there's pain that needs to be absorbed or metabolized, or racism that needs to be picked up and metabolized, or sharp edges that need to be. Just smooth through relationship and just mm. the knitting, that glue 
that glue that needs to be um, come between us to knit us together as humanity. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's my longing. That's my hope for us as humanity, right? Beautiful. It really is beautiful. That's the kind of world we want to inhabit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's deeply in line with it, it ATP is. and so on, which is, which is why I think, you know, soon Idolette and I will have some conversations around restoring our humanity. And yeah. I'm very excited um, about that, but more about that at a different time. Yes. Yeah. Well, friends, um, Edelette's book uh, hit the shelves um, a few few weeks ago um, in, in early April. Please go buy it. You will, you will be transformed by it. Um, I have enjoyed every page. Um, we will put links to all of um, Edelette's socials and where you can get the book in the show notes. Um, but Edelette, anything you would like to leave us with before we close out this amazing episode? Just the one thing that's coming to mind. So this book is written to white people, Mm. right? As a white woman in a white body, that was the only place I could see that this is the work that I need to do, right? So the, the book is written to white people, but my hope is that it's for a different world. Mm. So that as we do this work that we may do less harm in the world and be part of this restorative action and repair. Yes. yes. Perfect. Well, friends, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. We want to remind you, please do touch base with us on socials at Activist Theology. Um, join us on the porch, our Activist Theology app. Um, you can do that at atporch.com. Um, we have, we can officially say we have amazing, amazing things coming down yes. the pike for that. And we're really thrilled to be able to work more robustly on that over the next uh, few months. Um, Dr. Robin, it's been a great episode. Um, I, I hope I get to see you again, IRL, instead of just over the video. Yep. Um more. And um, there's much work to be done, friends. Um, You know how to get your hands dirty in the work. Um, Edelette's book will also help you and encourage you in that work. So please do pick it up. Um, And we will see you next time, Dr. Robin. And in the words of South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, let us become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.